Welcome to the Vineyard Boise Sunday Message Podcast. You can join us live on Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. on Facebook, YouTube, and vineyardboise.org slash live. Subscribe to our message podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And if you'd like to support Vineyard Boise, you can give online at vineyardboise.org slash give. Today's message is brought to you by Pastor Trevor Estes. Enjoy. We are going to be continuing our Christmas series. Now that it's after Thanksgiving, it feels a little more appropriate to say we're in our Christmas series. Plus, it was so cold this morning. I was like, clearly winter is here. Um, but you know what? We're, we're doing a Christmas series right now. We actually launched it last week. And the name of the series is Good News of Great Joy. Uh, that's kind of the banner over the entire series. Good News of Great Joy. And each week, we're going to be looking at a specific aspect of good news of great joy. Uh, so specifically this week, good news of great joy for those facing judgment. And every week, we're going to be looking at who exactly is this good news for and what's the nature of the good news. And it's, it's an interesting thing. We're actually tracing a theme. Um, this week, I've been likening it in my own thinking. I've been likening this theme. It's like a, it's like a crimson thread that's being traced through the genealogy of Jesus. And we're actually not going to get in, you know, it's, it's, since Christmas isn't here yet, we're not gonna get into the, the typical nativity story yet. Um, we're actually in Matthew's opening lines. And in Matthew's opening lines of his gospel and his account of Jesus' life, he actually does, uh, he tells Jesus' genealogy, Jesus' family tree. And he actually traces uh, 42 generations uh, between, from Abraham, starting with Abraham and working its way all the way down to Joseph, the husband of Mary. And those 42 generations, those are 42 names that to the modern day reader or listener often feels kind of like boring or tedious or unnecessary to the degree that most often in modern readers, we just skip over that. We just look at those names and we just like, we kind of glaze over and we just skip straight to the story, right? But if we do that, here's what we miss. There are some beautiful whispers about the gospel that Jesus is coming to establish and to proclaim and to make possible that we miss if, if we skip over those stories because Matthew was very deliberate about what he did. So in this series, we're not tracing all 42 of those generation. Specifically, we're, we're tracing the five women that are named in Jesus's uh, genealogy. We might call these the mothers of Jesus because they're in his family tree and they get named. And the reason that we're, we're focusing in on this, and I just need to highlight this, is that Matthew, including women in Jesus's genealogy, and, and specifically these women, it was really unordinary. He has, the language I used last week is, is that he swerved way out of his lane to include these stories. And so it begs the question, well, why did he do that? So there, it's highly unusual for him to have included them for a couple reasons. We'll look at them just briefly. This is just kind of a recap. Um, concerning Jesus, Jewish genealogies, first of all, number one, genealogies served as one's resume, meaning that in the first century world that Jesus was born into, your resume was not the things that you had accomplished, not where you went to school or where you'd worked. It was actually your family lineage. 
what they had accomplished, what they had become. Because the idea was that you would most likely, the, the, the best indicator of what you would go on to do and be was connected to the people who came before you, to your fathers specifically, and your mothers in general. So, so genealogies, they served that way. And um, oftentimes because of that, they were curated to, uh, to include ancestors that if they did something that their accomplishment was a favorable accomplishment and, and that's something worth highlighting, you put that in your family tree, you know, then, then those things would be highlighted. And it was also common to omit ancestors who's, who didn't really contribute anything or especially if their contribution was maybe sort of embarrassing, right? So you think about the way that like today people are doing uh, DNA tests and things like that. And there's certain stories that if you find those in your family lineage, you might not broadcast that, right? My family were slave owners, right? There's certain things that you don't tell, right? You just kind of leave that to the side. So genealogy serves one's resume. Secondly, they were selective, not comprehensive. We've kind of already touched on that. But it was not abnormal for somebody telling a genealogical uh, line in a family tree to skip a few generations here or there. Um, they might do that for a couple reasons. One, because they're curating the one, so they're leaving, they're leaving out generations that maybe were not so shiny. And, uh, but also sometimes just for the sake of expediency, uh, we saw that in Matthew's text last week that he was creating three sets of 14. And so he left out a few sets so that he could get it down to 14 um, to the number 14, right? So, um, so again, the implication of that is if genealogies were typically selective and not comprehensive, whatever Matthew chose to list, he actually chose to list, right? It was very deliberate. And then lastly, genealogies in the patriarchal world of the first century traced lineage through the males. And so you can see this, this the more typical genealogy was completely a list of the, of the males, the fathers that, that, you know, begat this guy, begat this guy, begat this guy, begat this guy. And the reason why, and you, oh, and actually you can see this, like in the, we have an, uh, another copy of Jesus' genealogy in Luke. And in Luke, it actually starts um, with Joseph and goes all the way back, not to Abraham, but all the way back to Adam. And it lists 70 generations and every single one of them is male, Right? That was the more common way that the genealogies were included. So again, the, the reason that this is worth highlighting is because when we get to Matthew and he lists these five stories and he lists stories that most likely would have been left out because of gender reasons or because of the content of their stories or because you were curating a genealogy to show something different. He's actually, he actually is curating his genealogy just in a way that, that kind of busts all the categories, that surprises everybody. So we're gonna take a look at that. And lastly, one specific thing worth noting about how Matthew begins his gospel, starting with the genealogy, is the way that he doesn't start it. Here's how he doesn't start it. He doesn't start it like this. <laughs> Nor does he start it like this. And the reason why is this, because the story he's about to tell is actually a story of historical fact. In fact, his first readers could have done the work to confirm Jesus' genealogy. That's, they were an oral culture. They didn't have DNA tests. They passed this stuff on orally and records were kept in the temple. 
So they could have actually traced Jesus' history back. We're talking about a historical figure, not a work of science fiction, not a story that came from Matthew's imagination. So we're dealing with history, not story. Okay, so let's pick up in Matthew 1.1. The book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Now, Abraham was the father of Isaac and Isaac, the father of Jacob, Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar. There's our first lady who's mentioned. Perez, the father of Hezron and Hezron, the father of Ram. So we're not gonna talk about Tamar today. We did last week. If you were not here or didn't catch that message online, I would highly encourage you to do so because uh, that message is the foundation for our Christmas series as we're preparing our hearts to respond to the Christmas message and to proclaim the message. And the, the important thing about us not only responding, but also taking in these messages is it changes the way we see the world. It actually changes the way we relate to other people when we see that they're included in Jesus' lineage, okay? So I would encourage you to, to, to go uh, watch that. You've probably never heard a Sunday sermon on Tamar. I had several people say that to me this week, say, I, you know what? I don't think I've ever heard a Sunday message on Tamar. And, but that's how we roll. Vineyard, right? <laughs> All right. So uh, Ram, the father of Aminadab, Aminadab, the father of Nashon, Nashon, the father of Salmon, Salmon, the father of Boaz by Rahab, who we're going to be looking at today is Rahab, Boaz, the father of Obed by Ruth, Obed, the father of Jesse, and Jesse, the father of David, the king. So we're going to look at Rahab. Before we get into her actual story, we'll do a little bit of background so that we can pick up uh, in a way that makes sense. So concerning Rahab, uh, Rahab is an Amorite, meaning she's one of the inhabitants of the land God promised almost 500 years previous to her time. God had promised that her land would be given to Abraham's descendants when God first made a covenant with Abraham. So I listed two key scriptures there, Genesis 12 and Genesis 15. Those are two really key places where God uh, makes a promise, a covenant, where he's going to do something uh, for Abraham and through Abraham, not only for Abraham's descendants, but for all the world. Um, But it says there that Rahab is an Amorite. You won't actually see that in today's text, but the word Amorite is kind of a, a junk drawer type of term meaning it covers a whole span of things that are all included in that drawer. So uh, sometimes the word Amorite refers to a specific kind of tribe or people group within the promised land. Sometimes it's being used generally to refer to all the ites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Amorites. Okay, sometimes it's used generally. So uh, we don't know exactly which tribe she is, but what, what we do know is she's one of the local inhabitants of Canaan. So the core promise that God uh, made to Abraham is that God was going to make of him a great nation. The time that God spoke to him, he was uh, elderly. He had no children. His wife was advancing in in age, almost to the point of not being physically capable of having children. By the time that she does have children, she can't, you know, technically. And, and God says, of you, I'm going to make a great nation. And so that, first of all, that's a, a huge promise in the patriarchal world that he lived in, that he was actually still going to have a son. But then the promise expanded and God said, through your descendants, I'm going to bless 
every family of the earth, every nation, all of creation, all of mankind, which of course includes the Amorites, right? So that was the, the first promise. Secondly, God said to Abraham, he, he warned him, and this is, you find this in the Genesis 15 cross-reference there. He warned him that there was going to come a time, he said, Abraham, this, basically he said, the timeline for this is gonna be different than what you might expect. He said, and we're gonna see this in the scriptures in a minute, he's gonna say, you know, you're going to die at a good old age, but your descendants are going to spend 400 years enslaved to another people. They're gonna spend time in a land that is not theirs, enslaved to a people where they'll be oppressed. But at the end of that 400 years, I'm gonna bring them out. And then he says something really important. He says that part of the timeline that's being driven by this, God says, is because of what's happening with the Amorites. So look at this. This is verse, uh, Genesis 15, verse 15. God says, you, meaning Abraham, you, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age in the fourth, uh, in the good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, meaning to the, the promised land, the land of Canaan. You will come back here. Why? For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Okay, we need to look at that. We need to look at what he's saying there. But, but understand this. You know, when um, Abraham was given a promise that he was going to inherit the land. Abraham was a idol worshiper. He was from a, a family who worshiped idols and God called him out of that family. And he said, if you renounce your past and come and follow me and, and identify yourself with me, I will bless you. And the land that I, t I give you to walk in, I will give to your descendants. So Abraham spends his whole life wandering the promised land, where he, biblically he's called a sojourner. But if you think about like backpackers or wanderers or travelers, that's how he spends his entire life. He, God never gives him property that he actually owns anything in the promised land. He travels it in faith that one day it would belong to his descendants. The only thing that he owned, this is just kind of a little aside, the only thing he owned is when his wife Sarah died, he bought a piece of, of property for her to be buried in. He bought basically her, her grave in the promised land. And as an act of faith, because he didn't yet inherit, he didn't own the land, it wasn't his land, he was just traveling through. He, he purchased a property saying, I believe that one day God is going to give this. He's gonna, be, he's gonna be faithful to the promise. And so he purchased the land and he got gouged. He paid way too much for it. You can find that story in Genesis, but he paid way too much and he didn't even argue because what he was saying is like, it, the way that we're going to inherit this land, it's not gonna be because of our cleverness or our shrewd bargaining. It's gonna be an act of God. And so in faith, I'll be gouged right now. And he just opens his wallet and gives the guy whatever he wants, right? So we go back to this last phrase though, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So God's gift to, the, 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 uh, to Abraham, think of it like a two-sided coin when God says, I'm gonna give you this land. And the two sides of the coin is that it's blessing for Israel and it's judgment for the Amorites. Blessing and judgment. And they all go together in this thing that God has promised. So the promised land, he, gives, he says, uh, I'm gonna give this to you. But in that promise, the side that's, I'm gonna give you this land, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna give you a land that, that is yours, that's a good place. It had whispers of Genesis one and two. 
Okay, Genesis 1 and 2 is the, is the uh, one place in Scripture where we see creation undefiled and unspoiled by sin. It's the one place. It's like these, what? It's like two pages, not even two full pages. Front and back. This is, this is creation as God intended it. And Eden is described as this lush place. It's a place of abundance and a place of, of, uh, of peacefulness and joy and, and relationship. And when God says, I'm going to give you your own land, it's described in language that, that echoes Genesis 1 and 2. So that's the one side of the coin. But the other side is actually Genesis 3. And so in Genesis 3, God says, uh, when the time came, Israel would be God's tool to bring judgment on the current inhabitants, to remove them from the land. Genesis 3, our first parents had rebelled against God, introducing sin and death into all of creation. Because of that, because of their sin and death and then what they had unleashed in all of creation, they were kicked out of Eden. They were removed. And God effectively said, it, 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 was, it was for reasons that weren't just punitive, they were also protective. God said, if, if you people now, as those who are spiritually dead and physically dying, if you have access to the tree of life, it won't go well for you. God was effectively saying, we don't need this whole planet inhabited by spiritual zombies. And so man's lifespan would now be limited. And so, so they were removed from Eden. And in the same way, when God says that sin of the Amorites is not yet complete, he's saying they're going to be removed from the land that they inhabit as well. So the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached completion. Think of it like a cup. And he said that their cup is filling up and it hasn't reached the brim. And until it reaches the brim, I'm going to patiently wait and watch. But when it reaches its full measure, I'm going to act, okay? And when God acts, it's to restrain the, the violence that mankind does to one another. We, we, we sometimes look at God's judgment that we see in scripture. And there's a couple of key places in the Old Testament. One is the flood. We'll talk about that a little bit more today. One is the flood and one is this when God says, I'm sending you in as judgment. And in a world where unrestrained sin was just working its way throughout all of creation, when God occasionally did a reset, it was actually out of mercy because of what people were doing to one another. But God's not rushing in. So what do we know if God says the sin of the Amorites is not yet complete? What do we know about the sin of the Amorites? We know a couple things. First of all, we know that they worshiped false gods with all kinds of cultic worship, including child sacrifice. So listen to how God warns Israel before they go into the promised land. And he says, when you go in, I don't want you to pattern yourself after the locals because it's the, the type of things they're doing that I'm kicking them out of the land for. Listen to this. This is uh, Deuteronomy 12. When the Lord your God goes ahead of you and destroys the nations and you drive them out and live in their land, do not fall into the trap of following their customs and worshiping their gods. Do not inquire about their gods saying, how do these nations worship their gods? I want to follow their example. You must not worship the Lord your God the way the other nations worship their gods, for they perform for their gods every detestable act that the Lord hates. They even burn their sons and daughters as sacrifices to their gods. 
Idolatry takes a lot of forms. In scripture, this was literally, they fashioned idols with their hands. They worshiped them. They sacrificed to their children at times to their, these idols. But God's point is like, you are not, as my people, you are not to worship the way the culture around you worships. You are not to worship the things they worship or the way they worship because my judgment is actually coming against them for those reasons. Secondly, we also know that they were characterized by all kinds of sexual immorality. There's one whole chapter of Leviticus that is uh, dedicated to spelling out various expressions of sexual immorality that characterized all the inhabitants of the promised land, all of the Amorites, Canaanites, Hivites, Jebusites, right? And God warned Israel not to follow their example. Here's a summary in Leviticus 18. The whole chapter deals with this. Here's a summary. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, meaning the sexual immorality named throughout the chapter, because this is how the nations that I'm going to drive out before you became defiled. Even the land was defiled. So I punished it for its sin and the land vomited out its inhabitants. There's a metaphor for you. But you, you must keep my decrees and my laws. You are to live the way I've created you to live within my boundaries. The native born and the foreigners residing among you must not do any of these detestable things. For all these things were done by the people who lived in the land before you and the land became defiled. And if you defile the land, it will vomit you out as it vomited out the nations that were before you. So, nice Christmas text. <laughs> as Rahab's story commences, it's nearly 500 years after God first made that promise to Abraham, when he said, I'm gonna give to your descendants the land and they're gonna spend 400 years in slavery, but then I'm going to rescue them and bring them out. And then I'm going to give you a promised land. And at that point, the sin of the Amorites will be complete. And so basically, as we get to Rahab's story, the time has come, the, the sin of the Amorites has reached full measure. It's brimming over. And it's time for God to bring judgment on Canaan on the inhabitants of Canaan, using Israel as his instrument. And so we have two things happening. Again, simultaneously, God is making good on his promise to Israel and he's actually bringing judgment that he's been, he's been restraining himself from doing. It's been 500 years now, but the time has come. We're gonna pick up um, Joshua chapter two. First of all, let me give you a map. Uh, here's where Israel is. Israel is currently encamped at Shittim uh, on the right side of your map there. That's just on to, you see that's to the east of the Jordan River. They're going to cross the Jordan River and the very first walled city or very first fortified city that they're going to reach is the city of Jericho. Chapter two, verse one. Then Joshua, son of Nun, he's the current leader and commander of their army. Joshua, son of Nun, secretly sent two spies from Shittim. Go, look over the land, he said, especially Jericho. So they went and they entered the house of a prostitute named Rahab and they stayed there. Now, the author, as you read this whole story of Rahab, he never suggests any sort of impropriety in terms of the spies um, uh, com you know, committing any sort of like fornication with, with Rahab. Um, what they're doing is strategic because well, as we're gonna see, her house is actually built into the exterior of the wall of Jericho. 
And as, as because of her vocation, it was probably a, a fairly high traffic place where, where men came and went from. And so for them to go there, this is a place where they could hopefully be inconspicuous and gather information about the city. But the two spies actually do get noticed. So here's what happens. The king of Jericho, verse two, the king of Jericho was told, look, some of the Israelites have come here tonight to spy out the land. So the king of Jericho sent, to, sent this message to Rahab, bring out the men who came to you and entered your house because they have come to spy out the whole land. But the woman had taken the two men and hidden them. And she said, oh yes, the men came to me, but I did not know where they had come from. At dusk, when it was time to close the city gate, they left. I don't know which way they went. Go after them quickly. You might catch up with them. But, verse six, but she had taken them up to the roof and hidden them under the stalks of flax that she had laid out on the roof. So the men, meaning the soldiers that were sent, they sent out in pursuit of the spies on the road that leads to the fords of the Jordan. And as soon as the pursuers had gone out, the gate of the city was shut. Before the spies lay down, verse eight, before the spies lay down for the night, she went up to the roof and she said to them, this is really important. I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. The text actually says, our hearts melt in fear. Verse 10, we have, we have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt. Okay, that was about 40 years previous to this time. We heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings of the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. And when we heard it, our hearts melted in fear and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. Rahab is part of a people who worships other gods and this is the closest thing we have to a confession of faith in terms of her understanding of the God of Israel. She says, I know what's about to happen when you come in it is actually of God's doing. This is not a battle between Israel and the Amorites. This is a battle between God and the Amorites. And she says, we know, we've heard. And, and your God is the God over heaven and all the earth. That's like all encompassing. This is the closest thing we have to a confession of faith. She knows that God's giving the land. The whole city is already aware of God's power, specifically how he's moved on behalf of Israel already. And it's really important from understanding God's character that we realize how much warning they've had. We know going back to Abraham that God said, I'm watching them. The creator is not inattentive to his creation. I'm watching what's happening. I'm watching the sin and the violence that's happening in this land of Canaan. And, it's, and it hasn't reached full measure, but when it does, I'm going to act. So God's been patiently restraining his judgment for some 500 years now. They've had warning because they know what happened to the last nation that oppressed Israel. They know what happened in Egypt. They heard the story. They heard about Israel crossing the Red Sea on dry land and the Red Sea swallowing up Pharaoh's army. That story has gone out, it's gone viral and all the inhabitants know. And not only do they know the distant past of 40 years, but they know more recently that there was two kings and their people who tried to oppress Israel on the way through. And Israel said, hey, we're not here 
we're not here to stay. We're just passing through. Just let us pass through. And they harassed them. And so God went to war with them. So they've got this history. They've got basically warnings. These are like warning shots across the bow to say, change. And they're not changing. For her part, though, Rahab's taking action. She's taking action on what she knows. And so what we don't have from Rahab, nowhere in this text do we have a, a theologically complete confession of faith. Okay? You'll never hear Rahab say, I know that uh, God is the creator and that his son Jesus is going to come into the world and die for our sins and be resurrected on the third day. And that all who, she never, I mean, she couldn't have obviously, hadn't happened yet. But this is her confession of faith. And basically she aligns herself with Israel and Israel's God. And she says, I'm, I, I've seen what God can do. I, I see what he's about to do. And I'm throwing my lot in with you. Will you save me? That's what she says. Listen to this. Now then, verse 12, please swear to me by the Lord that you will show kindness to my family because I've shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and my mother and my brothers and my sisters, all who belong and all who belong to them and that you will save us from death. She's basically saying, save us. I see what's coming. Save us. I see the power of your God. Save us. Verse 14, our lives for your lives, the men assured her. If you don't tell what we are doing, we will treat you kindly and faithfully when the Lord gives us the land. And so Rahab aligns herself with Israel, with Israel's God. She, okay, be to be clear, Rahab is facing the same judgment as all of the Amorites. And what she doesn't say in this is she never protests her innocence. She never says, hey, I'm one of the good guys. You should, you, you're, you should spare me because I, I, I deserve to be spared. She never, she never does that. And in fact, what we know is basically she's complicit in the sin that characterized her culture, one of the reasons that God's bringing judgment. We don't know her backstory. We're never told how Rahab became a prostitute. We do know that throughout human history, that's not a, a choice that women have made because they wanted to. It's typically something that was forced on them or that they were forced to out of desperation or survival. So we don't know why she chose that, but we know that one of the things that God has named as a problem in the land of the Amorites is sexual immorality. And she's complicit in that. But she doesn't say, you know, she doesn't ask to be let off the hook. She just says, save me. That's really important. She's essentially forsaking her own people and her gods, and she's acting on what she knows about Yahweh. So let me just summarize the rest of her story. We're not gonna read all the text. It's in Joshua 2, if you wanna read it. Let me just summarize the story. When the coast is clear, Rahab lets the two spies down the city wall using a scarlet rope. This is kind of cool. It's, in fact, it's not just kind of cool, it's really cool. Scarlet rope. They tell her that when the battle comes, she's to put that scarlet rope back out the window, and anyone that she gathers in her home will be spared. You, you realize what that echoes back to? It echoes back to the first Passover that just happened 40 years ago in Israel's history. And 40 years ago, when the angel of death was going to pass over the land of Egypt, over the Egyptians and the Israeli people alike, they were given this simple instruction. 
They were said, if you gather, gather in your households together and any household that comes under the blood of a perfect spotless lamb that has been sacrificed will, will be protected. And so they were to take a, a, an unblemished spotless lamb. They were to, to sacrifice it. They were to, and to make a meal of it, but they were to take the blood and paint it over the, the door jam of the house. And anyone who is inside that house who is under the blood of the lamb would be protected, right? Doesn't entirely make sense. How does that work? But that's, that's what they were told. Rahab's now told, you put this scarlet rope out the window and anyone who gathers in your house will be protected. So what happens? God gives Israel a unique strategy. <laughs> unique. It's a unique strategy. I want you to walk around the walls of the city for six days, okay? And when on the seventh day, I want you to blow kazoos. And just, we'll just see what happens. He gives a unique strategy, but here's the thing. It makes it very clear that he's the one doing this. It also gives six more days for the Amorites of Jericho to turn to him. Don't miss the mercy of God. God that's been merciful for all this time is the sin of the Amorites that's reaching full measure. And they've had warnings. They, had, they, they knew what happened to Egypt. They knew what happened to Sihon and Og. And now they've got six days of peace where Israel doesn't come in war. Israel just walks around the city. And it's a warning. You know what's coming. And the question is, will the people of Jericho, will they humble themselves and say, save us, have mercy on us? Or will they continue to resist God? And wholesale, they chose to continue to resist God. So Jericho falls in a way that's very clearly God. Again, this is not Israel versus the Amorites. This is God blessing Israel and God judging the Amorites. Jericho falls, Rahab and her family are spared and they become grafted into Israel. She eventually becomes one of the mothers of Jesus. And in fact, as we read that text, you saw that she became what was like the great, great grandmother of King David. So thoroughly was Rahab, the Amorite, Canaanite prostitute, grafted into Israel that she becomes a mother of Jesus. You realize what this means. The whispers of this about the gospel that's, being, that's about to, to become real in the person of Jesus is that it doesn't matter where you've come from. It doesn't matter what you've done. It only matters how you relate to Jesus. It only matters if you ask for mercy. Matthew deliberately wove this crimson thread into the prologue of Jesus' story. And it begs the question, why? Why does Matthew swerve out of his lane to reference Rahab's story? We looked at why he concluded Tamar's story. Why does he include Rahab? because it whispers in advance of Jesus bringing hope for all who are facing destruction. And here's what we need to, to zero in on today. Matthew, you know, he's, he's, this, is the, this is the first, first words of the New Testament. And in the story of Rahab, there's this whisper for those who stopped to think about that story, that God's judgment is coming and that he prefers to act in mercy. That's the whisper, it's contained right there. And what Matthew whispers by, by weaving this crimson thread, including Tamar into the story, what he whispers there on the other side of Jesus' life, which includes Jesus' birth, ministry, 
miracles, death, resurrection. On the other side of that, Peter writes, after Jesus has returned, and what Matthew whispered, Peter shouts. And Peter wasn't just shouting it for his audience, he was shouting it for us. And so listen to what Peter had to say. Peter essentially warned that what happened to Jericho will happen again to all of creation. That was just a little shadow, it was a foretaste. Because all of humanity is like Jericho in rebellion against our creator. We're independently doing what we think best, or at least what we want to do, even when our consciences tell us not to. And we've been lulled into a false sense of security that it's never gonna catch up with us. Peter's very concerned that people, because God's mercy, because he keeps waiting, that people will interpret his mercy as, oh, it's never gonna happen. This is what he says, verse three. Peter says, most importantly, most importantly, I want to remind you that in the last days, scoffers will come, mocking the truth and following their own desires. They will say, what happened to the promise that Jesus is coming again? From before the times of our ancestors, everything has remained the same since the world was first created. They deliberately forgot that God made the heavens long ago by the word of his command. He brought the earth out of the water and surrounded it with water. And then he used that very water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. He's referencing the story of Noah, which was one of those times where God looked out at creation. And in Genesis, I think it's Genesis 9, it says that God was sorry that he had made mankind because he saw that the inclinations of their heart was always wicked all the time, continually. Unrestrained sin was permeating creation. And when God saw the violence and the wickedness, he just said, it's better for me to, to wash it all out with a flood and start over. Peter says, it's happened before. Then he used a water to destroy the ancient world with a mighty flood. And by the same word, the present heavens and earth have been stored up for fire. They are being kept for the day of judgment when un ungodly people will be destroyed. But you must not forget this one thing. Dear friends, a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. A thousand years is like a day. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He does not want anyone to be destroyed. He wants everyone to repent. This is God's word. The Lord isn't really being slow about his promise, as some people think. No, he's being patient for your sake. He doesn't want anyone to be destroyed. That's not his desire. But he wants everyone to repent. In the same way that God was patient with the Amorites, 500 years, 40 years, six days. But eventually their time ran out. Rahab's life is this, it's a warning and it's a promise. Rahab's life shows us that God's desire is to offer mercy over judgment. Jesus' life, that she eventually goes on to include Jesus in her lineage, Jesus' life shows us the lengths to which God would go to make that invitation possible. God's desire to show mercy over justice was so powerful that he entered into this world and gave up his life personally, that he offered up his son. This is the length of God's love. We don't, we don't have a God that's just so eager 
to bring judgment on creation. He's patiently restraining himself. But in his holiness and his justice, he can't simply overlook sin. He has to deal with it. And what he prefers to do is to deal with it in mercy. Jesus came to offer us a different cup than the one that we've been filling and the one that we deserve. All of us are complicit in the sin of mankind and, and specifically in the sin of our culture. In the same way that Rahab was her, her worldview and the way that she lived out her life, she was complicit in the sinfulness of the Amorites. And all of us are complicit in the sinfulness of our people, our culture, 21st century America. We're complicit in that. And so what's our, the blood over our doorframe or our crimson cord? It's this cup you were given today when you walked in. Because this, this cup is our way of receiving in faith that Jesus has done for us what we couldn't do for ourselves. That Jesus took the punishment upon himself. That his blood was spilled for us. This is, again, this is our, our crimson cord. Anyone, who's, anyone who comes under the covering of this is spared. Not because we deserve it. Just because we asked. Today, we're going to close by receiving communion. Here's what communion teaches us. We could have our, our worship team come. And if, you, if you're here on campus and you don't have communion yet and you'd like to receive it, if you'd raise your hand, our greeters will come around and make sure that everybody's got one. So just keep your hand up until you have one. If you're joining us online, you have a couple more minutes to, um, to find some elements of communion, bread, juice, crackers, wine, whatever you can find. Once everyone's got that, we'll talk for just a moment about what it means. For those of you here on campus, um, just a little bit of housekeeping. If you bend the tab down on your communion and then up, you'll be able to get that lip off to actually open it. That'll make it easier so you can focus on why you're here. Communion teaches us. It reminds us and it enables us to appropriate the invitation to God's grace that's made possible in Jesus. It teaches us personally that God is not wanting to hold our trespasses against us, but that he's made a way for us to be forgiven and to be spared from the condemnation and destruction that's due. And here's what he invites us to do. He invites us to forsake our old life, the, the ways that we participated in the sin of our culture, the ways that we've been complicit. He invites us to leave that, to leave the, the idolatry of our culture and come worship him and be formed in his image. For those who've, re, who've received communion previously, you're, we're receiving it again because we know we're still in process that we're still being formed to be like Jesus. This is part of our sanctification. And we're gonna take a moment as we do this today to, to stop and pause and say, Jesus, Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction to my heart? Is, is there ways that I've been living like my culture that are dishonoring to you? Ways that you're calling me to leave behind and to be grafted into your family?
So we're gonna give you a moment to do that. Before we do that, I just wanna give an opportunity because if you're here this morning and you've never personally responded to Jesus, the message of both Rahab's life and of Peter's writing, his, his letter, is the judgment's coming for all of mankind. And just the, the fact that it hasn't happened yet doesn't mean it's not going to. It just means that God's patient and merciful. But if you've never personally received God's mercy, if you've never come under the covering of the blood of the lamb, of the, the crimson cord, today's a day to do that. And it's as simple as a statement, kind of like Rahab said. Rahab's statement was, save me. It wasn't a perfect theological understanding of baptism and sanctification. It was just, I need to be saved. Save me. And if you don't have that assurance today, what an incredible opportunity this Christmas to respond to Jesus and say, Jesus, would you save me? So if you haven't done that, I just want to give you that opportunity before we together receive communion. Most people in this room have already at some point responded to Jesus in that way. But if you haven't and you don't know that, you don't have that assurance in your heart, today's the day. I'm just going to ask you to raise your hand right where you are. And I'm just going to lead you in a, a quick prayer before we receive communion. And so if that's you, would you raise your hand? We'll say this, responding to Jesus doesn't have to happen in a corporate context like this. Many of us, our stories of surrendering to Jesus happened in different environments, not in a church building. The Holy Spirit draws you to himself. All you have to do is pray, say, Jesus, save me. I love that Rahab's story is so honest. She just says, I know what's coming, save me. That's all it takes. Church, if you're, if you're here this morning, uh, would you just take a moment before we receive communion and look at what's in your hand and recognize that this represents Jesus offering his life for you. And I'm assuming that because you didn't raise your hand that you've already stepped into that relationship with him and Communion's an opportunity for us to experience sanctification. To say, Holy Spirit, would you soften my conscience again? Would you speak to me about the ways that I'm complicit in the sinfulness of my culture? And as the Lord brings conviction, there's ask for forgiveness with the commitment that God, I want to live differently today. And, and this represents God's empowerment because it's not just about what Jesus did at the cross, it's about what he did at the tomb. The tomb, Jesus made new life available, resurrection life. And if you are in Christ, if you've been grafted into his family tree and you now have carry his name the way Rahab did, here's what that means. It means that you have a new, new spirit living inside of you, the capacity to begin living differently. And so this is our message of hope. This is how we appropriate grace this morning.
So I'll, I'll be quiet now and let you do that. Lord Jesus, thank you for your mercy. Thank you for saving Rahab and her family. Thank you for teaching us through her life that it doesn't matter what we've, who we are, what we've done, but that you, your preference is to deal with us in your mercy and your grace. Holy Spirit, would you bring conviction to our hearts today? Would you open our eyes to ways that, that we're living today that mirror our culture, not your ways? Would you give us the grace to ask for forgiveness and the grace to begin living new patterns? to no longer following the pattern of our culture, but following the patterns of your ways. Jesus took some bread and he gave thanks to God for it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And take the bread. And after supper, he took another cup of wine and he said, this cup is the new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with my blood, which is poured out as a sacrifice for you. Drink the cup. If you're here on campus and you're able, would you stand with me? And the worship team is just going to lead us in one last song of response. As we do so, our prayer team sensed this morning that God specifically wanted to meet people with, with healing, physical healing, spiritual healing. Maybe that healing is uh, freedom from uh, an area of addiction that you've been praying about this morning. Uh, maybe it's healing from the past, from shame. Um, or maybe it's physical healing. And if that's so, I just want to invite you to come up during worship. Uh, after we've sang a song, then the prayer team will, will join you. But I just want to invite you to come up front so that we can, um, we can meet you up here and pray with you.
Um, apart from that, we're gonna sing this song and then we're gonna go out from here and we're gonna make the invisible God visible. And, and part of our commitment, having visited this story, is recognizing God doesn't see the people out there in categories of us and them. God sees a people that he wants to extend mercy to. And he does that through us. So be merciful this week. Amen. And grace, you've shown me grace. You've lifted my shame. You've drawn me with loving kindness. Washed whiter than snow. You have redeemed and made me whole. Oh, Jesus, you have won. continue to transform us to be a people for your possession, a people uh, inhabited by your spirit who are zealous for a life that's pleasing to you, who carry your image and your message faithfully. And so as we go out from here into our, our homes and our neighborhoods and our workplaces and our schools, we pray that you would be made visible in us and through us. We love you, Jesus. Amen. Hey, if you, uh, if you need prayer this morning, don't miss that opportunity. We'll be up here. Prayer team will be here to, to meet with you. Apart from that, go make the invisible God visible.
Thanks for listening. To respond or receive prayer after the live stream closes, please email prayer at vineyardboise.org. And if possible, include your phone number. We'd love to get in touch with you. Thanks.